If you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, starting in verse 53. We'll read through verse 160. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust, because they do not keep your commandments. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing on the sermon text this evening. Father, attend your word with the life-giving ministry of the Spirit, who extends that ministry of Christ unto us even now, and fulfillment of that promise that Christ will never leave us nor forsake us, that he will lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive the word, that you would churn up our hearts like soil being prepared for the good seed to take root, to be watered, to be fed by light and heat, and to yield that crop of life which can come forth only from the ministry of Jesus Christ, who is the light and the life of the world. Posture us aright before your word, the magnificent riches which have passed unto us. Posture us aright before your Son, the incarnate word, the one who rules and reigns, our Savior and our God, that we might stand in awe of the salvation which has been prepared unto us, and in which we have been made participants, those who share in great joy. We ask all these things in Christ's name, amen. Time in question 36 continues as we consider the blessings beside. We'll take as our sermon text Romans 14. Romans 14, verse 17. We'll read now the scripture passage first, and then we'll turn our attention to the catechism question. But first, this is the very word of God. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Thus ends the reading of God's word. In question 36, what are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, 
peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein unto the end. Amen. And C.S. Lewis's autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he references a phrase in Milton, uh, John Milton, the author of Paradise Lost, and I was uh, smitten with this phrase as soon as I heard it. Milton uses the phrase, the enormous bliss of Eden. The enormous bliss of Eden. That is a wonderful phrase. Just chew on that for a little while. I like it for a number of reasons. It sounds nice. Enormous bliss has a pleasant ring to it. But I like it because it uses the image of size. The expression of size to help us understand something of joy, delight, which I found wasn't easy for me to get my mind around as I was meditating on this passage. Joy, delight. Perhaps I overthought it. That seems likely now that I'm saying it out loud. But perhaps you've had this experience. In the face of something delightful, you feel yourself swell to the point of bursting. That's made its way into our language, right? My heart swelled to the point of bursting. I can't remember the author or the book, but I can recall the phrase, the expansive effect of drink upon the heart. We use these images of size and swelling, expansiveness, to orient our mind to this abstract reality of joy and delight. Wilhelmus Abrakel, the author of The Christian's Reasonable Service, uses the size image as well in his own definition of joy. He writes, Joy is the pleasure, delight, and rejoicing of heart. It is the expression of a spirit set at liberty or enlarged, generated by a present blessing or due to the anticipation of a future blessing. That's a pretty good definition. The classic scene of the man at the pub declaring expansively, drinks are on me because of the news of his newly pregnant wife or the news of his child's success. Some iteration of experience generating the expansive quality of joy and that man acting out of it, saying drinks are on me. Joy is not defined anywhere in the scriptures. Interestingly, not to my knowledge, this isn't that uncommon. We don't get definitions of things like love, peace, patience. There's just a certain assumption that we know to some extent what these things are. It assumes that people know what joy is. People know what delight is. They've experienced it. They've had it. Any number of earthly iteration of gift has the capacity to produce a delight of heart, a joy, an expansiveness causing our spirits to enlarge and swell. I can remember this even before coming to Christ. Certain moments of sort of levity, just sort of rising of lightlessness, a lightness of 
being a delight. I can recall winning a competition in high school and feeling like I was going to burst. After I came to Christ, I can recall vividly the feeling of successfully defending my dissertation and being like, this is it! I can die happy. This is it. This is amazing. Holding Maisie for the first time. My wedding day. My siblings' wedding days. The joy I felt on each one of those occasions. They were sweetened by the fact that I belonged to Christ. But interestingly, there are universal experiences. I'm sure you could fill in your own, both from your Christian life and from your pre-Christian life. God gives good gifts that delight the heart. His gifts delight the heart. And so when Scripture weighs in on this joy, that can be the spiritual joy, it assumes a certain earthly joy, a certain earthiness to the joy that we have as an operating category for delight. Scripture affirms the earthy joy. Psalm 104, you give wine to gladden the heart of men. It's not just Christians. (laughs) Certainly our wine has a unique significance, but it's not just Christians. The joy of wedding day, the joy of success, the joy of food and drink is universally shared, bearing testimony to the goodness of God. But this joy is different. This joy is unique in a number of different ways. You feel it right off the bat, even from the question, for it is described as joy in the Holy Ghost, in the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual joy, not in the sense that this joy uniquely penetrates the spirit of man, but in that this joy is uniquely wrought by the Spirit of Christ as a particular ushering in to those joys that the Son of Man says he came to give and in full and uniquely to those whom he's purchased for himself. So let's ask a couple of questions of this text in Romans about a subject I wish I could articulate more clearly, joy, but I trust we've all tasted. So first, what is spiritual joy? Second, what causes joy? And third, how is joy expressed? So first, what is joy? We've already said Paul doesn't define it for us here. He just lays it out there. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He just lays that out there. (laughs) He says, you know what joy is? And he says, the kingdom of God is concerned with that. Well, that's encouraging right away. Already we're disabused from these notions of religion or Christianity being a dour religion. Somehow everyone is sullen frowned, just waiting to pounce on you when you do the first thing wrong. No, it's something different. The kingdom of heaven is a matter of joy. The Son of Man said, I came to bring joy that you may have joy. And in full, John writes, I write this so that your joy may be complete. Well, that's a different conception of religion. Reading that hideous strength right now, I fear that Only one or two of us have read it. It's really wonderful. It's a lot of work, but it's one of the main disillusions, or the main illusions that dissipate for one of the initiates of the New Christianity. She said she'd always thought that it was simply this, this sour and sullen affair, as opposed to this light and life and delight at belonging to one who is so supremely worthy. The Lord Jesus Christ. 
So he qualifies it here. He says it comes from the kingdom of God and it comes from the Holy Spirit. And then he contrasts it with these other things. Eating and drinking. Now Paul's dealing with a particular issue in the congregation at Rome. It seems like, to the best of my ability, they're wrestling with the um, legitimacy of observing the Mosaic ritual laws in terms of, of eating and drinking and, and, and calendar observation. And Paul wants to disabuse them of the notion that that's what the kingdom of God is. So he says it's not a matter of that. It's a matter of these, these spiritual realities, these gifts, these choice gifts of the Spirit. But I think we're also to hear in this taking those two emblems that are so frequently associated with joy the world over, eating and drinking, and saying, it's even better than that. I mean, think about that. Think about how many excellent moments in life take place over food and drink. How many excellent moments take place around the table. He says, as excellent as that is, this is better. There's a reason we mark the table as our meeting point with the kingdom. It's the feast to end all feasts. The most excellent feast that you've ever experienced is but a faint echo of the marriage supper of the Lamb to which we have all been beckoned and to which he has purchased our right to attend. So joy here is set forth as the most excellent gift of the reign of God. Notice he links it closely with peace and righteousness. It's linked closely with peace and righteousness. It's not a matter of this, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now we're to understand righteousness here not as that imputed righteousness of Christ, but rather as the righteous conduct that Christ is working in us. Being ruled by the Son such that we actually delight to walk in His ways now. That's remarkable. I only ever wanted to walk in my ways before. And now, there's a part of me that's like, no, no, I, I want to go where Jesus tells me to go. I want to walk where Jesus tells me to walk. I want to be found with Him. Wherever He goes, I want to be, for He is wonderful. Additionally, this peace here seems not primarily to be that peace which we possess with God because of the propitiation of Christ, but rather the harmony that is beginning to take place among us as his servants, as we live out of that reality of reconciliation. So why does he link righteousness and peace with joy? Well, partly we learn that our true joy takes place apart from sin. Now think about the degree of reconfiguration which that ushers in from the very beginning. We bought the lie that delight and sin were to be identified. Right? From the very beginning, this was the diabolical lie. That your blessedness comes as you transgress the bounds that God puts in place. That your delight is to be found in that which God has forbidden. So we made this ancient association that is not easy to undo by any means. Have you figured out how to undo it? I do not believe that you have. <laughs> that is an ancient association that Paul here reconfigures. You know, he says joy is to be found in obedience. Joy is to be found in righteousness, in actively walking in the path of life, in the path of light. This is where joy is. Won't that be our unending joy in part? That we'll no longer be able to sin. 
that will be reconfigured in perfect righteousness to reflect him. So he enters into that age-old debate. Is, is there joy to be had in transgressing God's law? The devil says, of course there is. He's keeping all sorts of things from you. And Jesus says, no, there's not. There's only death over there. Joy is here and he gives it abundantly for you. The enormous bliss of Eden. It's free. Walk in his way. Additionally, we learn that our joy comes together, linking it with peace. So frequently, again, we're led to believe that somehow my joy is bound up with getting rid of all you people because you're nothing but problems for me. It's not it at all. We talked this morning about running with my brother. I always run alone, but I found myself unexpectedly delighted to be running with him in one of the delightful features that we finished together. And we got to delight in the race that we ran and the fact that we both came to the end. Paul presents a similar picture here. Our joy is bound up with one another, advancing in the understanding of this salvation, advancing in the knowledge and the grace of God on display in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul doesn't define joy here, but he puts some really beautiful angles on it. He places it within this lovely constellation of the kingdom of God, of a life lived in righteousness, now in part, one day in full, of sharing together in a joy, for joy shared is such a, an appropriate expression of that which is expansive. You want to you bring it to more people, right? All these people are my friends. <laughs> All of these adornments situate this jewel of spiritual joy. We can appeal to Brockle's further definition as he defines joy once more. It's a delightful motion of the soul generated by the Holy Spirit in the heart of believers, whereby he convinces them of the felicity of their state, causes them to enjoy their present benefits, and assures them of their future felicity. Felicity is a good word. I wish we used it. It means blessedness happiness in the thickest sense of that word. You can hear very much what Paul is saying here. You belong to Christ. Enjoy that reality. Delight in that reality. The lines have fallen for you in pleasant places. So we've already begun to ask our next question. What causes true joy? We said that earthly gifts can cause a semblance of joy, but one of the maddening qualities of life is that they fade as quickly as they dawn. Have you not felt this? The wonderful meal is over as soon as it began. The vacation ends in a blink. <laughs> I set up on the shores of Lake Michigan with my family uh, earlier this summer, and as soon as we unpacked our bags, we were packing them up again. It was this wonderful time of, of, of time together and, and beautiful weather and swimming, the children delighting together. And as soon as you sort of reconcile your soul to the fact that you're in this moment of delight, it's gone. It's like trying to catch smoke. It's one of the maddening qualities of life, isn't it? It's one of the evidences that we live in an age of futility. It's one of the dynamics of living in this cursed and fallen world that the Lord redeems because he then cultivates in us an appetite for that which does not fade. 
for a delight and a joy which isn't given to the temporary nature of every other joy and delight. It will be your wedding day and then it won't be. Your children will be babies and then they won't be. You will be in the fullness of health and then you won't be. And you'll wonder each and every time, where did the time go? It's Proust's in search of lost time. Where does this time go? Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Open up this age of joy, day without end, where we will gaze upon your beauty in the face of the beloved Son. So there are earthly gifts, and they prompt us towards this heavenly joy. The real cause of joy throughout Scripture is singular. <laughs> it's God Himself. God Himself. Psalm 84, 2. My soul long, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. The psalmist here and elsewhere sees that it is God Himself that is the satisfaction of the deepest longing and ache of His heart. We sang Psalm 42 this morning. My soul longs, my soul pants for you. Oh, Lord, whatever gifts and blessings and pleasures the world may offer, and they are not slight. The heart of faith continues to say, you put more joy in my heart than they do when their new wine and grain abound. Choicest iterations of earthly joy pale in comparison to belonging to God and having God belong to you. Yes. Your God, you being his special possession. When Samantha travels with the children for an extended period of time, and I'm left alone in a state of squalor, <laughs> emotional squalor, she's always so generous in leaving me gifts. She'll leave me meals that are easy to prepare. And I'll make them, and I'll think, these are so wonderful. My wife is so thoughtful. These are such good gifts to enjoy in her absence. But as the week wears on, it becomes increasingly plain. The gifts are not what I want. <laughs> I want the giver of the gifts. I want her to come back because I miss her. Wonderfully, as Augustine points out, God made us for himself. And that means he alone is that which can satisfy the human heart. Our joy comes in belonging to him and him belonging to us. And this, by virtue of his covenant, by virtue of the Lord Jesus Christ, which brings us directly to the unique object of our joy. God has come to us as our king. The Lord Jesus Christ dwells with his people in the most intimate terms conceivable. This is the joy that erupts in Luke 2.10. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. You never hear anybody say that anymore. I bring you good news of great joys. All you get are notifications of bad news. Apocalypse! 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 Guess what they're doing now? Guess what new scheme we just uncovered? You'll never believe they did this. It validates all of your fears, all of your suspicions, every worst nightmare you've ever had. Just watch this video. The angels come. I bring you good news of great joy. 
it will be for all people. A Savior has come. The Savior of the world. God and man reconciled. The Maker reconciled. The Maker known. The very purpose for whom you were made. Set on display in the Lord Jesus Christ. Great joy. This bewildering ache that has plagued man from the very beginning. Why do I exist? What makes sense of any of this? Finally resolved in the Godland. Setting on display the salvation of sinners in the atonement for sin, in the excellence of righteousness, in the bringing near of the lost, in the retrieving of those bent on destruction. Joy. That's good news. I hope you hear it because you're about to go back into a week of bad news. But we are the people of good news of great joy. For we know our God. And we know the excellencies of His grace and mercy extended unto us in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what John the Baptist would say in John 3.29 about the joy of the arrival of the bridegroom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and, hear him and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Blessed be that John. He got it. He wasn't interested in followers. He would have been terrible at Twitter. He wasn't interested in followers. He was interested in preparing the way for the only one who's worth following. The matchless king. The bridegroom who has come for his bride. And his joy was full. What the joy of the one preparing the way is full. How much more the bride. How much more the bride when she hears the voice of the bridegroom. Saying I've longed for this day. I've been waiting for this day. For you are my beloved. And I am yours. I had the joy of officiating my brother's wedding. Any number of my siblings weddings. I've never seen a dour-looking bride. She is always aglow, and all eyes turn to her. But I'll also tell you this. I've never seen a dour-looking groom. The groom's face shines just as radiantly as he looks upon his bride. And that's the wonder that Zephaniah 3, 14 and 17 presses upon our heart. It's not just the bride who rejoices, it's the groom who rejoices at having his bride. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Who's happier there, the bridegroom or the bride? The groom's joy seems to exceed even that of the bride's. It's a wonder to consider that the Son is the face of the Father towards us. It's not just the Son's joy at finally possessing His special people, but it's the Father's joy in marrying off His Son, and bringing the bride into this blessed family. Make no mistake, the Father delights 
over his people. The son delights over his bride. And our joy in no small part is bound up with us seeing the delight that the father has on us. And who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who he's making us to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who he's promised we will be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ This is the one thing I want you to take away if you take away anything from this. It is Jesus Christ who is our joy. Our joy is a person. Our joy is a king. Our joy is a husband. Our joy is our savior and our God. People experience joy, it comes and goes, but in Jesus Christ alone is their fullness of joy, lasting joy, the joy of which every heart was designed to know. To strive to know God apart from Jesus Christ is not to know joy. It's to know unending sorrow, which is tragic beyond description. Christ is our joy. He supplies us with everything that we need. He teaches us not only what we need, He teaches us what we really want, and then He supplies the needs of both. For the Father and the Son are one in this. They have taken unto themselves a people. Peter can write, Though you have not seen him, that is Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Our joy comes as we behold the beloved Son set forth for sinners on behalf of the Father. It comes to our hearts through faith. But this does raise a question, doesn't it? Jesus Christ says he came that his people would have fullness of joy, meaning that chief object of human joy had arrived. Right? The chief object, the lone object of true joy on display in the sun. But what about the tension that generates now in this world of sorrow? Another way to say it is, does joy exclude sorrow? Now, we've been talking richly of joy. Now, does this joy exclude sorrow in this life? The paradoxical answer that we give is no. And Paul sets forth this tension explicitly when he writes that he goes about as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Wait a minute. That seems impossible. How can one go about sorrowful and yet always rejoicing? Charles Harge writes this. He says, this is the great paradox of the Christian experience. The believer has more true joy and sorrow than the world can ever give or know. The sense of the love of God, the assurance of his support, the confidence in future blessedness, The persuasion that his present light afflictions will work out for him a far greater and eternal glory mingle with his sorrows and give the suffering child of God a peace that surpasses understanding. Interestingly, Scripture constantly sets forth the reality of our trials and then says, rejoice in them. (laughs) That's so odd to me. James writes, count it all joy, my brothers, when you are met with trials of various kind. 
Peter writes, in this you rejoice, though now you are grieved with various trials. Paul writes, we rejoice in our sufferings. And then the Lord Jesus Christ teaches plainly, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can hear the constant refrain, and that was just a sampling. These trials, which really do grieve, they really generate that reality of sorrow. They must be endured. That means they're not easy. As Calvin taught us not that long ago. Yet, there's still reason for rejoicing. Why? Not because the flames are inherently delightful. Not because the cross is inherently delightful. Quite the contrary. It is death. It is grievous. But rather, Scripture confirms that our trials press upon us the reality of God's love. Our trials expose us uniquely to tasting of the excellencies of that love. And our trials are used to produce in us further conformity unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Trials are the occasion to prove to us that we are loved by God, as counterintuitive as it is. That's what Jesus says. He says, if the world hates you, sorrow, know that it's because you're my followers. Joy! <laughs> okay, nobody likes to be hated. I don't like to be hated. Do you? You do not like to be hated. Nobody likes to be hated. So this wave of distaste washes over you. On the one hand, that's incredibly grievous. But what does it confirm? I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. For in this way, they treated the Lord Jesus Christ. In this way, they treated the servants of Christ. We're invited to see these trials of evidence of God's love for us. Indeed, that we are true children. Our trials also became the furnace in which our faith and hope and love grow. Our trials make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's implied, isn't it? Even in the call of picking up your cross. Who went to the cross? Christ. There's fellowship with him in suffering. There's conformity to him in suffering. He took up his cross. We follow after him with our cross. Trials refine faith. Trials produce in us life. He says hope, character, endurance, none of which puts us to shame. And then trials confirm to us that we're true sons. According to Hebrews, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. How do you know you're not a true son? You never experience any adversity. It's a sign of illegitimacy. No ache, no sorrow, no grief. You're an illegitimate child. You're not a child for the children experience these things. And it goes on to say, look, all discipline is unpleasant. Children, do you know this? Have you been disciplined before? Is it pleasant or unpleasant? It's unpleasant. But to learn the way in which we are to walk is good. Even the non sort of instance by instance type of discipline. Try to force yourself to wake up every morning at 5 a.m. and run. Try to force yourself to wake up 5 a.m. every morning to work on your French or whatever it is that you're working on. Discipline. That's what discipline is, right? The discipline of an athlete. Is it pleasant? No. It is not pleasant. 5 a.m. is not a pleasant hour. 
The discipline itself is unpleasant, but why do it? Why be subject to it? Because the result is gain. The result is good. And so also our discipline from the hand of the Father in and of itself is pleasant, but what it produces is wonderful. For it strengthens faith, it stirs up hope, and it fortifies love. And thus they're worthy to be rejoiced over. Last, we can close by asking, how is joy expressed? And we'll be brief here. We ask this question because most of the words concerning joy come in the form of verbs. Rejoice. It's a verb. <laughs> so it stands to reason. Well, how do I rejoice? How do I express this joy? Well, joy is expressed in public worship. We read in Luke uh, 24, uh, 52 and 53. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. Christ descends. The disciples go to the house of worship. <laughs> it was a place for public rejoicing, public joy to be expressed. The joy of Christ's triumph naturally moved them to worship. Now, in a sense, our whole lives are reasonable worship, yes? But the fitting forum, that most appropriate forum for worship is the public assembly of the redeemed. There's something remarkably fitting indeed commanded for joy to be expressed in the corporate of those who have been ushered in to joy. I mean, the most frequent activity associated with joy in the Psalms is what? Singing. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing unto you. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name. Singing. That elevated speech, that soaring of heart with the melody attached to words. There's something appropriate about joy being expressed in volume. We went to the Minnesota State Fair this past week. My children love the Minnesota State Fair. We went last year, and then for a year straight, they asked regularly when we could go back to the State Fair. For a year. I'm really not even joking. <laughs> and then last Monday morning came, and we woke Michael up, and, he said, and we said, guess where we're going today, buddy? Shouts of joy filled the house. He couldn't contain himself. It was just Noise was the overflow of joy. Now, our noise is a little bit more refined in that it's refracted through these glorious words that have been given to us and attended with skillfully composed melody. But how fitting, how instinctive, known from the behavior of a two-year-old to express joy in noise. I pray you sing in your family worship. It's a beautiful practice, availing yourself of the gift of song at all times. But where do we sing? Where do we hear the, the full-hearted expression of, of joy? It's in the congregation of the redeemed as we all lend our voice to this blessed, multi-dimensioned gift, multifaceted gift, multi-voiced gift of belonging unto God. We sing unto the Lord in public worship, but we also express joy in prayer. Paul's writes, Philippians 1, 3, and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. We have so many reasons, so many reasons to delight. It's so easy to fixate on any given trial, any given difficulty, any given ache, and even in the face of that, 
there is still reason to say with Paul, even though I go about sorrowing, there is a heart of rejoicing that beats within it all. Why? Because of your present blessedness in the Lord Jesus Christ and the certainty of your future felicity sealed in the blood of the Son. If that's not capable of generating joy, then nothing is. Because there is no greater gift than to belong to God in the Lord Jesus Christ. May he make it shine forth with all of its plainness to us that we may rejoice in the gift that we've been given. Let's pray. Father, sanctify this word unto us. Press it upon our hearts. Conform us into the image and likeness of Christ as you showcase the excellencies of our King. Uh, do this by the ministry of the Spirit who delights to work through the word, even now. Enable us to feast upon your word as we are sent back out, Lord, into our callings in this world. May we each depart with your word pressed upon our hearts that we might be encouraged as we go about our daily lives, Lord, until you bring us back into your presence or call us home. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.